0: Turn now to Ephesians. Uh, We'll be continuing in the book of Ephesians, and we'll be in Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. And today, particularly, we will be looking at verses 7 through 10. Uh, Ephesians 3 7 through 10. But before we get there, I want us to consider the question what is the gospel? Uh, What is the gospel? Well, that word gospel means good news, and then that just raises the next question, well, what is the good news? Uh, What is the good news of the gospel? Well, I want us to consider what Paul writes, uh, not to the Ephesian church directly, but to the Corinthian church. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul gives us a kind of definition of the gospel that uh, we can go to and and kind of understand what are some of the components that make it up. So uh, 1 Corinthians 15, I want to look at verses 1 through 8. I'm just going to read those for us. And Paul writes to them, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So I raise that there because Paul, Paul gives us kind of a definition, right? He says, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel is the thing that I preach to you. It's the thing I want to, you to remember. I want to remind you about. It's the thing that leads to your salvation if indeed you receive it. And so what does he give us as the elements of the gospel here, right? He says that Christ died for our sins. Now implied there is something important. Our sins, right? That, that there were There was a necessary sacrifice uh, for the payment of our sins, that we have sins, that we there are things uh, there are there is iniquity and transgression and sin for which the only just uh, result of those things is punishment, is judgment, is condemnation. Uh, Or as Paul writes to the Romans, right, the wages of sin is death. And so there is death. Uh, for all these things, the, the evil that we have thought and said and done, and for the good we have failed to do, the, the, what we deserve from that is death. For all these things, we must die. But Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Christ, the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, died for our sins. The God-man died that we might live And he really did die. Right. Paul. Paul continues and said he died and he was buried. Right. He didn't swoon on the cross, as some uh, would allege. He didn't just faint. He died. He was dead and he was buried. And there he laid for three days. And in accordance with the scriptures on the third day, he rose from the grave and then he appeared. He showed himself alive. Right. So not only was he really dead and buried, but he also was really alive. And Paul gives us this this encouragement. Right. He appeared to the apostles. The apostles saw the risen Lord Jesus. Uh, Indeed, at the end of the Gospel of John, we get this interesting little scene where Jesus is around a campfire and he's eating fish what's the point of him eating fish he's not a ghost right he's not just an apparition he is alive he's bodily alive and this is the gospel right so in the death of christ our sins are paid for in the resurrection of life we have the hope of eternal life for ourselves and for as many as call on him many as believe in his name they will be saved and this is the gospel right Though we should have been cast forever into hell for our sins, God through Christ made provision, and in this provision we have life. The work of God in the gospel is a grace to his people. And today I want us to see in Ephesians, I want us to see that the church exposes the wondrous wisdom of God in his grace. The church exposes the wondrous wisdom of God. Of God's grace. And so let us see that in our passage today, out of Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 7. Hear this, the word of the Lord. Of this gospel I was made a minister, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this is the word of the Lord. So, Remember, in chapter 3 here, Paul begins a thought in verse 1 that is not completed until verse 13. So, in chapter 3, verse 1, he starts a thought, and then he kind of digresses. He interrupts himself and begins to discuss his relationship to the mystery of Christ, his, his relationship to how God had revealed to him, God had called him, chosen him, revealed to him, explained it to him, and now Paul is a minister of this mystery. And he talks about this mystery, which is that the Gentiles are are not less than in the disposition of God's kingdom, but they are fellows. They share in the same promise, the same body, and the same inheritance as God's people Israel who believe. So Jewish believers and Gentile believers are not less than compared to one another they are equal and this is an amazing thing this is a this is a mystery uh, that was not known from the very beginning although it was hinted at throughout the scriptures and we can see the hints of that now that we are on this side of the revelation of the mystery but for paul in his time this was a new idea in the dispensation of god's grace and god's revealing of himself and his plan to the world and to his people, because, for instance, in the last section in verses one through six, we find that Paul uh, Paul describes himself as one who receives this gift of grace to preach the gospel. He is not an innovator. Paul didn't set out to make the Jewish faith better. He set out to keep the traditions of the elders and make sure that people were in lockstep with those traditions. And any who erred from that, he wanted arrested, imprisoned, put to death. Right? Paul was a, a zealot for the traditions of the elders until God intervened. Right? Then God, uh, Christ, spoke to him on that Damascus road, revealed himself to Paul, and that changed everything. Paul changed, and here we have Paul now preaching Christ and him crucified. And so let's continue today. Let's find out more about Paul's mission. And let's see first in verses 7 and 8, the grace of the minister, the grace of the minister in verses 7 and 8. So verse 7 begins of this gospel. And again, which gospel? And we're talking about the mystery that he's been writing out about, right? So verse 6, this mystery is... That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, through the good news. And it is of this good news uh, that Paul was made a minister. And again, I want us to stop here and consider this language here. Paul was made a minister. Why do I note that? Why do I want us to note that? Because this is a passive, uh, it's a passive verb here. It's not an active verb. Paul didn't say, I made myself a minister. Paul says, I was made a minister. Paul became a servant of the gospel, and he didn't choose this service for himself. He did not make himself a minister. He did not take a look on TikTok and see that the Christianity hashtag was trending and say, I need to get in on that. If I get in soon enough, I could really blow up. I could blow this thing up and really be someone important. Paul didn't see it getting popular and decided to give it a go. By the way, in Paul's time, the Christianity was anything but popular, right? It was uh, very much a persecuted, uh, persecuted people, persecuted religion. It would remain that way for many, many years. He didn't think being a Christian minister would make him famous or rich or anything. But he was made a minister. He was chosen for service by God. And again, why do I emphasize this? Because there are in our day still those who choose choose to be pastor or an elder. They think that pastors have some prestige and so they seek it for themselves. They want to have a platform from which they can uh, produce their ideas and their thoughts and have people listen to them some people think that they are owed the title of pastor uh, you get in some uh, churches i've seen it not so much with the title pastor but certainly deacon although we had a bad understanding of deacon in the church that i was a part of uh, that had this problem is that some people thought because they had been there so, for so long because they had given so much money, because they had done this or that, because they were prominent in the community, that they were owed a title of prestige within the church. And some people, I think, do think that about pastor, about elder. I've been here for this many years, I, I deserve this, as though it were the business world. And if you're at a company for 20 years, you, you should become a manager. They think that they're owed rights and privileges. But brothers and sisters, pastors are called by God. And pastoring is not about oneself. It is a ministry. That word ministry. It is a service. It is a servanthood. It is a stewardship. Uh, Well, would many pastors need to heed the warning of the scriptures? For instance, we could look at Ezekiel 34. And we could see what God says to the shepherds of Israel who do nothing else but feed their own fat gullets and how God proclaims uh, his judgment on them. Or we could look at the warning that James gives us in James 3, 1, right? Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because there is stricter judgment to come. Now don't misunderstand me, men, brothers. It is good to desire to be a pastor. Uh, the scripture tells us as much. First uh, Timothy 3 1. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. There should be an internal desire. We should not be forcing people to become pastors. If they don't want to be a pastor, we should probably take that as a sign that maybe they're not actually called to be a pastor. Now, of course, the situation's complicated because sometimes uh, we do things like Moses and says, well, I, I can't speak, Lord. And God says, didn't I make the mouth? And Moses says again, no, but really, I can't speak. And God gets angry. Understandably so, right? Uh, that's, by the way, out of the book of Exodus. You to know, go look that up that refusal to serve us. but i want us to consider that elders have a calling from god and that calling should be confirmed by the church and it they should evidence godly character right that's what the scripture tells us all these things but Paul writes here that he was made a servant of the gospel, and it was God's gift of grace in him, right? According, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Right? It was God's gift of grace. Consider, out of the book of First Timothy, consider First Timothy uh, chapter one, verses twelve through seventeen, first Timothy chapter 1, 12 through seventeen. And Paul here writing to his son in the faith, his protege in the faith, his his beloved uh, friend and brother in the faith, Timothy, he writes he writes about himself and about uh, this gift of grace that was given to him. And listen to these words of Paul here. First Timothy one twelve I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord Because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, Be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And I include that last verse there because you notice how Paul, when he's thinking on the grace of God, can't but help to just overflow in praise to God. And so, too, for us, as we consider the grace of God towards us, uh, it should produce uh, spontaneous praise, as it were. So, God was gracious towards Paul, right? Because Paul was insolent in his behavior towards God he he rejected God, he rejected Christ, he rejected the way that God had revealed himself and because of his sin, not just because he rejected God but because of his sin, the whole of his life uh, his his continuous action towards sin in the book of Romans right he says I heard the commandment do not covet and it just produced in me all kinds of coveting I couldn't stop it I recognized it everywhere every time I looked up all I did was see coveting 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 in my life and I'm sure Paul could uh, repeat that about many other commands in the scripture but but all this to say he should have been cast forever out from the presence of God he should have been cast forever into that pit called hell from which no man may ever leave. But God, right? But God, but the grace of God overflowed to Paul. Christ stopped Paul in his tracks and awakened faith and love in him. And in this Paul found the forgiveness of his sins and he also received the commission of Christ to go to the world, to the Gentile world and to preach the gospel. This gospel that Gentiles can be reconciled unto God. So, was God's power at work in Paul? Yes, absolutely, right? It was through the working of his power, of God's power, all this took place. It's that wonder-working power that gave him life and changed him forever. So, he continues in verse 8, "...to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given." And the beginning of this verse sounds a lot like what we have in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But there are some real differences between what Paul writes there in Corinthians and what he writes here. Because notice, uh, first in, in Ephesians here, he says, to me, though I am the very least, So right, he doesn't just use the comparative to say I'm the least. He says I'm the very least. He uses the superlative. He takes it up a notch. He intensifies it. He says I'm the very least. Or as in the King James Version, I'm less than the least of all. He says I'm last. I'm as nothing in the body of Christ. And he broadens the comparison. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I'm the least of all the saints, of all the apostles. Here in Ephesians, he says, I'm the very least of all the saints. So not only is he just talking about a subset of of the church, he's talking about the whole church here in Ephesians. He says, "I'm, I'm the very least of all the saints. And now we can take this in one of two ways. We can receive this in one of two ways. The first is that Paul is just speaking in hyperbole here. He's kind of, uh, maybe we might say, hashtag humblebrag. Like, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the very least. It's kind of like where we get, and I think it's in the book of Deuteronomy, where, uh, which we know Moses to have written that. And it says, Moses was the meekest of all the men of, all, of the earth. And you're like, does the meekest man of all the earth write about himself? I'm the meekest. Um, Right, we we, we get we can chuckle about that, and maybe Paul's talking about himself this way here, because is Paul really the least of all the saints in the church? No, he has prominence. Right, he he is prominent. Think about the composition of the New Testament. How many of the of the books of the New Testament are Paul's letters? The majority, right? A great majority. Uh, he is well regarded. Uh, We are recipients of the gospel today in no small part because Paul's ministry back in the early church. So he could be like, you know, uh, just it it could be a fake, a a disingenuine um, statement here of humility. The second thing we could receive is that he is being genuine here. He's expressing something of his heart. To his readers, uh, to us today. And if you read through the rest of Paul's letters, I think you'll find that this second option really is more more likely, right? Even what we read out of First Timothy when he says, "I'm the chief of sinners," I don't think Paul had a big head about himself. Uh, I I really do believe that he feels in relation to the rest of the church. Uh, a real deep sense of humility because he understands something of God's grace towards him. He understands that he is in that position for no reason of his own. He didn't earn it, right? And again, what's grace? It's unearned favor. It's unearned blessing. It's unmerited blessing. And I think Paul understood something of that. Now, granted, Paul may not have always felt this way, but I think as he is expressing it here, he's being genuine. We can, for instance, consider 2 Corinthians 12, 7. So just to give another highlight of why, why I believe this to be genuine. 2 Corinthians 12, 7. This might be familiar to us. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Now, it doesn't really matter what the thorn in the flesh is, although we can speculate about it, but it doesn't really matter. But what does Paul say is the, the purpose of that thorn? To keep him from becoming conceited. What it likely means, uh, Satan had designed this attack to bring Paul low, to make him give up on his faith in Christ. But it really had the opposite effect, right? It actually sharpened Paul's faith. Uh, By the way, as I was thinking this, this is just an aside. As I was considering this, I thought about Job. And I thought, Job was harassed by Satan for what purpose? To make him curse God. And Job was brought very low. But what did that hardship, that difficulty, the calamity, the pain, the sorrow produce in Job? Humility and faith. It was a gift of God's grace for Job to be brought so low. Because it allowed him to see God clearly. So too with Paul. Paul is not showing false humility here. He knows that he is only in the position that he is in because of the grace of God. It's God's grace. And God's grace, when rightly understood, never produces pride. Some accuse uh, those who are of the Reformed faith, who believe in the doctrines of grace, of creating kind of smarmy humility that says something like this. It's really pride that says, Well, God chose me. I'm something special and you're not. Right. But God's grace does truly the opposite. Right. Because we will say, as Paul writes in Romans, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I know that I am no special catch to God wretched man that I am who will deliver me from this body of death and the answer to that is not me because I chose myself and I chose freedom and I chose to believe in Christ and I and I'm there and I'm with it and I understand these things no the answer to that is thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord it's all of grace so it is with all of God's children right God's grace through Christ makes us See how unworthy we truly are of anything good from his hand. And the marvelousness, get this, the marvelousness of God's ways is that he is good to his people. And so we get to the end of verse eight here. So Paul confesses, understands, I'm the very least of all the saints, He probably, maybe he, he asked the question of God at times, God, why did you, why did you choose such a worm as I, but this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ or the unfathomable riches of Christ. But Paul is saying that in his preaching, what he is doing is he is drawing water from a well that is so deep, you can't sound the bottom of it. Sounding and you take a giant weight, you drop it down and you listen for the thud at the bottom. You can't do it. And no matter how many buckets he pulls up out of that well, it never changes the position of the water in it, it never dries up, it's always full. And you beloved, may drink from this well of the unfathomable riches of Christ for a lifetime, and you will find every single time its waters are just as sweet, just as satisfying and never ending. Brothers and sisters, considers. How you have received of the grace of Christ. And do you think he has done showing grace to you? No. While you dwell in this body of flesh, you will still sin. And in Christ, you will find the propitiation of your sins. You will find his grace sufficient in every weakness, and pain, and calamity, and trial, and trouble, and hardship. And when you pass from this life and you stand before the line of Judah in heaven, you will find him ever yet more gracious. And when this earth and the heavens are renewed and made new at the end of this age and at the beginning of eternity, you will understand yet more the nature of the unsearchable riches of Christ. And as you live every day in eternity future... Spending every day in the light of His glorious presence, you will continue to find new means and measures of His grace again and again and again and again. And my God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. For from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace So we've considered the grace of the minister. Let us next think on the plan of the mystery in verse nine, the plan of the mystery. Verse nine continues. So Paul continues, right? So he was given grace to preach the message of Christ to the Gentiles and to bring to light for everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so he says paul my mission my ministry is to enlighten everyone to make them know the mystery of god and this mystery was again ephesians 3 5 which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the spirit all right it was hidden for ages It wasn't known in other generations. They didn't have the full revelation of God as to his plan for the salvation of sinners, whether they're Jew or Gentile. They had pieces. They had parts. They had enough for what they needed to know in their day and age. And even the angels looked to see what was going on with all this. But now this mystery has been heralded by the holy apostles and the prophets. And again, we consider that Paul was called by God to go into the Gentiles, to preach unto them the message of reconciliation. Paul was made a, a minister unto the Gentiles to especially carry the message of the gospel unto them. It is not as though he did not care about the Jewish people, by the way. We know he has a, a deep heart, a deep love for the Jewish people. Read Romans 9, read the beginning of Romans 9, right? He, he says something that I don't think uh, maybe any one of us would say about anybody else. I wish myself were accursed if my kinsmen in the flesh would believe. It's how deeply, how strongly Paul felt about the salvation of his brothers and sisters, according to the flesh. But Paul was made this right. He was given this. And he was given to bring to light for everyone was the plan of the mystery. In his letter to the Colossians, which is kind of in some ways a sister letter to this one, to the Ephesians, it was written close, close in time together, uh, and the content overlaps a lot. Uh, in Colossians 1, verses 24 through 29, Colossians 1, 24 to 29, Paul writes there about his, his ministry, again, this, this idea, what he's writing about here in Ephesians. So I want to read that for us. Colossians 1, starting in verse 24, uh, he writes, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Right? So Paul rejoices in his sufferings if those sufferings are the furthering of his mission to, to proclaim, to enlighten everyone as to the mystery, the plan of God, this, the, the administration of God's salvation. And his work is to warn and teach and to present everyone mature. Right, He wants people to know God and God's plan. He wants them to know the ways of God. And let me say here, friend, that uh, though you may never have believed in Christ, though you may not think that there is much need to believe in Christ, understand that without him you are dead in the sins and trespasses in which you live. But the riches of God's grace is such that any who believe in him, who trust in Christ, will never be put to shame. And if you confess your sins and trust in Christ, you will be saved. You will experience the riches of his grace. When I I was speaking earlier about how we who are in Christ have untold, unfathomable, unsearchable access to the riches of God in Christ, that is only true if you are in Christ. That is not true of everyone. That is not true uh, for you being born. That is not true for you being born into a Christian family. It is only true if you believe in Christ and you can enjoy the blessing of God. You can enjoy the forgiveness of your sins if you humbly come before God and plead with him. The plan of the mystery is that God who created all things to whom all his creatures owe obedience. Right. So again, let's pause there and just think about this. Why does it matter what we do? If God is God, why does it matter? Because God, our creator, has spoken And God has said that this is obedience and this is disobedience. And much like our parents, we don't get to determine what obedience and disobedience is. They do. And so when we disobey God, though, it's not like disobeying our parents. It's of a greater transgression, a greater fault. Because we're not just disobeying someone who is also faulty. We're disobeying someone who is Holy and perfect and righteous and good. And so when he says something, it is holy and righteous and perfect and good. And listen, I understand in our culture, in our day and age, we don't like to hear those kinds of things. Um, Just thinking about some of the way that our culture thinks about sin. Right? That we need to be allies for sin. That we need to affirm people in their sin that we need to embrace and tolerate and do all these things. And and listen, as as Christian, I'm not saying we go through and we we start uh, mowing down people who don't believe like we believe. I'm not saying that. I'm not suggesting that's what we should do. Love doesn't call us to do that. But love doesn't call us to look at someone who is dead in sin and say, keep going. Good job. You're doing right. You feel, you feel that way? Okay, keep, keep those feelings. Your feelings are final and ultimate, and that's what, all that matters. That's not true. Your feelings are not God. Your feelings did not create you. And the reality is sometimes we have to rise above our feelings and do the thing our feelings don't want us to do. Because God, our creator, says differently. So we we have to understand this, right? We owe obedience to God. God does not owe us grace or mercy or forgiveness or any good thing. But God in Christ made provision for the dead in sin. And so come to Christ. Learn of him and love him. He is the loveliest among 10,000. That's a Song of Solomon reference there for you. You won't get very many of them. Uh, But he is the loveliest among 10,000. He's the loveliest among them all. Paul was shown the grace of the minister, and, and in it he revealed the plan of the mystery so that the church could expose the wonders of God's grace. So let's look at that lastly, the witness of the church in verse 10. So Ephesians 3, verse 10, the witness of the church. And this is really interesting uh, stuff what Paul Paul writes about here. But before we get to this verse proper, I do want us to pause and comment on the word order, because depending on your translation, you might see so like in the ESV it says so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be now may might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, and that phrase the manifold wisdom of God, in most modern translations i think we front this in the king james version it's at the end of the sentence and so why the discrepancy Uh, well in the greek word order it actually is at the end of the sentence but as we read in english uh, our english grammar does not match up to greek grammar and so sometimes translators what they have to do is they front that word order so that way it makes more sense to us in the english And so that's what's happened here. So just in case you're like, well, why is this verse so different Uh, upon reading? It's just to help us understand it. So what is Paul's intent here, though? Because that's all that matters, right? Regardless of the intent of the translators, what's Paul's intent? What is he writing about here? He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He writes that, The wisdom of God is displayed through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies. Christ's body is the means by which God's manifold or multifaceted wisdom is revealed, made known, disclosed to angels. So, some questions to unpack here. First, who are the rulers and authorities? We get the first taste of this phrase in the book of Ephesians back in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 here. Uh, Speaking of God, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And if you go back to the sermon then, I think we had some discussion about, oh, is this earthly authorities or heavenly authorities? And probably some mixture of the two there. But as we think about it here, right, it says in the heavenly places. So we know we're talking about uh, rulers and authorities in heavenly places and in a different plane of being. Um, rulers and authorities are those whom Christ is seated over in prominence And an authority. Later in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, we will read again about these rulers and authorities in Ephesians 6, verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So here we again, we have rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In this context, it's clear in that context, right, that these are evil forces. These are not good forces. Uh, they are uh, evil and their intent is evil and we wrestle against them. Uh, that's the implication back there in chapter one, that Christ even rules over them. Right. He rules over the disobedient and the evil. Chapter six They're clear they're evil. So we come to chapter 3 and we ask, uh, of verse 10, are these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places evil or good spiritual forces? And it could be both. Uh, If you read some old commentators, they will probably say that it's good, that these are angels that we're talking about. Uh, But it could also be evil spiritual forces. I mean, that much is clear from the context in chapter 6. So both angels and demons... And remember that demons are just angels that are fallen. Uh, Both angels and demons bear witness to God's wisdom through the church. Um, First Peter uh, in chapter one, verse 12, Peter writes uh, about the gospel and about God's administration of salvation. That even these are things that angels long to look into uh, or long to look for. So who are the rulers and authorities? Spiritual forces and probably some mix of good and bad. I think we can make that statement here. Second, where are the heavenly places? Paul uses that phrase a number of times. If you go read through Ephesians, you'll see this come up, and up again and again. Uh, and the evidence seems to point to this place of being a, a supernatural so that is not physical, but a spiritual place which is disordered and chaotic. It's not obedient to the command of God. Again, Ephesians 6.12 tells us that, right? That in the heavenly places, there's authorities, there's, there's rulers, there's spiritual forces of evil. And they, that's where they are in these heavenly places. Uh, I won't pretend to know all of the Jewish thought about the makeup of the universe, um, especially at the time of Paul. But we can understand and, that there are different levels, uh, different dimensions, if you would say, of, of reality. We have a physical plane, right? That's where we are. Hi, we're here. right? There's a heavenly places, which seems to be a place, a, a spiritual place, a supernatural place. Angels are there. And it's got some sense or some level of disorder, kind of like here on earth, right? There's disorder on this earth. It's chaotic. It's evil. Uh, we see that. We know that. Paul says that of in Ephesians six twelve that the heavenly place also has that. And then we can see that there's a place above that, uh, we might say, of heaven, God's throne room, the courtroom of heaven, uh, where God dwells. And by the way, there is no disorder and chaos there. All right. So that's that's what is going on there. We know in the scriptures that there is spiritual warfare going on of which we are completely oblivious to. Daniel 10, for instance, tells us of one such occasion uh, in in with the prophet Daniel. Uh, So if you look at Daniel chapter 10, I want us to look at uh, a few verses from this chapter, Daniel chapter 10, and see this reality because it's something... It could just be the the Baptists in us that don't deal with these questions or uh, some other reason. Uh, But we tend not to deal with these questions, but we we should be aware of these things going on. Daniel 10, starting at verse 13. An angel, so Daniel has a vision um, and he doesn't know what's going on with it. And he prays to God, and an angel comes to him and starts to speak to him. And Daniel 10, 13. The angel says to him the prince of the kingdom of Persia who had stood me 21 days but Michael one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia now what's that all about it seems like the prince or the king there is a demonic spiritual force jump down to verses 20 and 21 uh, then he said, that is the angel speaking again. Then he said, do you know why I've come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So something about Daniel has an angel watching over him. And that angel is going and fighting spiritual battles against rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, We could also jump to Jude 9. Jude verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And we all know what that means, right? Just just like when Paul says, because of the angels. (laughs) All All this to say is that, There are spiritual battles, spiritual warfare going on, which is why Paul writes in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our primary battle. It's not about the other people around us. But we have to realize that there are dark spiritual forces of evil that are warring for the souls of people. There are spiritual wars and realities around us which we are most oblivious to, but God is not. Mm-hmm. And more than that, so what Paul is saying here, what, is, what all this matters is, look at what Paul is saying here. In verse 10 of Ephesians 3. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So in this spiritual, supernatural war that's going on, angels and demons have to take note of what? The church. And what does the church display? The manifold wisdom of God. Now, what is the manifold wisdom of God? That's the question we have to ask. It's the gospel, right? Paul is writing here in Ephesians that it's through The gospel that the manifold wisdom of God is made known. The gospel is God's wisdom and it entails every part of salvation. So we talk about God's manifold wisdom. We're talking about every part of salvation. It starts with Ephesians 1, God choosing, God electing from before the foundation of the world, those who would be his. It continues with every up and down of the story of the people of God. It rises with the coming of Christ to save his people. It crescendos uh, with Christ being lifted up on the cross. It climaxes in the resurrection of Christ from the grave. It's God's redemption of his people through the work of Christ. It's it's his justification of his people through the blood of Christ. It's grace through faith. It's his people being sanctified through the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. It's us being seated with Christ in the heavenly places. It's making the Gentiles co-heirs with Christ. It's all these things. Oh, the riches of the wisdom of God indeed. And that is what the church shows to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places and how does the church do this the church does this by the church being the church the church displays the manifold wisdom of god in her meeting in her worshiping in her singing in the preaching of the word and they're going out and assailing the gates of hell and ripping from its clutches men and women, children and seniors, male and female, Jew and Gentile. It's in a minister of the gospel, Paul, going forth and preaching and revealing the ways of God. So church, you expose the wondrous wisdom of God's grace to men and angel alike. when the church heralds the message of the gospel and people are saved what does Christ say in the gospel happens in heaven? The angels rejoice right they bear witness to these things and they rejoice. what do they rejoice about? Do they rejoice because someone got saved? Yeah that's part of it right but what are they rejoicing in? who are they rejoicing in the person who is saved? Or the God who saved them. They're rejoicing and delighting in the God who made his manifold wisdom known through his plan of salvation. Isn't that remarkable? God's wise plan for his creation was never ultimately its destruction, although that's what we deserve. Go back to the time of Noah. We deserve a worldwide flood that kills everybody and everything. We deserve what God did in the days of the Noah. And in the days ahead, as described in the book of Revelation, we deserve what is to be brought because of our sin. You, friend, deserve hell. You may count your sin as a little thing. You may say, oh, it's not really that bad. And it's certainly not bad, as bad as the scriptures make it out to be. You may think that you'll be fine, like it's okay, I got myself. You may think that there is nothing after this life at all, right? You live here, you die here, and that's it, story's over. But understand this, there is life after this life. Heaven and hell are real, and they are filled with real people. Those who live in disobedience to God are cast forever into that pit where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. It is a place where the justice of God reigns forever. But Christ... But God, in his manifold wisdom, made provision for his people. Christ Jesus took the place of sinners. And by the way, just that phrase alone, that should tell you something of the wisdom of God. Because whoever would have thought, this is how God's going to do this. He's going to give his only begotten son and pour his wrath out on him. But in the atoning death of Christ, he purified for himself a people. Such that all who believe and trust in Christ will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is the wisdom of God. This is what God has revealed to heavenly forces. This is good news, right? This is the gospel. Trust it. And every aspect of our salvation, brothers and sisters, exudes God's wisdom. Sometimes we think differently in our pride, right? Sometimes we think, God, your plan of election stinks. It stinks. By the way, that's a blasphemous thing to say, so never say that, right? We think in our pride that we could do better, but there is no better way. God elects, God regenerates, God justifies, God sanctifies, God glorifies in every step of the way. God's plan of salvation and purpose for his people declare his glory and goodness, his mercy and love, his grace and wisdom. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And indeed, may we continue to give him the glory due his name. May we worship him in the splendor of holiness. May we sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. May we rest in our all-wise God. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, we confess that we are insufficient to understand these things. It's a foolishness to us who think in logical ways, and it's a stumbling block. Father God, we know. God, we know that there is no good that dwells in us that is in our flesh. Father, we confess that if our salvation relies any bit upon us, God, we will fail you a thousand ways, just as the Israelites of old did. Father, we confess that our only hope, our only, uh, our only, s- just place of joy or rest, is only in you, and in the new covenant that you made in Christ. That you confirmed in Christ that in his blood shed, sealed. For Father, unless you give us a new heart, we will continue on the same way as we always have done. We will continue to sin against you, to rebel against your ways, to to repudiate you. Uh, Father, we may even coat it with a veneer of whitewash, but it is nothing but dead bones inside. Father, have mercy on us. Oh, God, have mercy on us and save us from our sins. And we thank you, oh, Lord, we thank you for your wisdom, for your wisdom in saving sinners, even us, oh, Lord. Father, we pray that those in our midst, those in our families, those in our workplaces, those in this community around us, Lord, who are dead in their sins, Lord, who who seek so many other ways to be satisfied, uh, to, to, to seek so many other ways to fill that which is lacking in their soul with so many other things. God, we pray that you would have mercy upon this place. Father, that your spirit might pour forth, that the message of Christ might be preached, and that there would be many who come to believe. O Father, that they would believe and worship you. Father, that they would glory in you, that they would rejoice in you, that they would find themselves in you, and that, that even the spiritual forces of evil, even your own angels who continue to serve you minister. Before you those who sing out holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, that they might yet have more reason to marvel and to wonder at your grace and at your wisdom, at your goodness and your love for saving such creatures as we. O oh God, be praised. In your people, we pray in the name of our blessed Lord, your only begotten Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Christ Jesus. Amen.